You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Uncivil Outlaw. Chapter 2. Closure. Abigail. On November 3rd, the day before James and I left Washington, I received a visitor. A few hours before Team Steam reconvened in that underground bar, I was enjoying a quiet drink and a chat with Tabitha Chorley. She had just gotten into town, something to do with negotiating better terms for the zinc trade. I didn't delve into the specifics, but she brought Baby Jay with her. Now five months old, he lay in a bassinet, a tiny, dark-haired angel, curling his little fingers around a bone rattle, his steady eyes fixed on me. Coochie-coo! I chucked his chin in a vain attempt to get a giggle reaction from this sphinx-like infant. No good. Is it somehow possible James is the father? Oh, he's far calmer than James. Plus, I'm sure I'd remember if that were the case. No. He's just a deeply serious baby. He's assessed the situation of the world he's in, done his calculations, and decided things are so bad it's not even worth crying. Things are never that bad. We wouldn't be here having this conversation if they were. Do you still pray every night? We reclined in rocking chairs on my balcony, overlooking the city skyline and sipping from chilled brown bottles. Mine a beer, hers a sarsaparilla. It's kept us safe so far. I worry less if I feel like God is looking after us. I have a question, as something of a lapsed Christian myself. You know those mysterious ways we keep hearing about? Mm-hmm. Do you think that's what some people call fate or destiny? She furrowed her brow and considered. I suppose, yes. When you look at it from far enough away, what might have felt strange as it was going on sort of works out in the end. That sounds like destiny to me. I nodded uncertainly. Something out there brought you to my door the day, the very day, I needed you and James and your wheels. Something kept Jay Hewn beside me long enough to save all of us. It feels... I don't know if these are the best words, but... Sad and perfect at the same time. And that's how Jesus has always felt to me. A lot of things I could say ran through my head. I thought of all the other worlds we'd glimpsed, and that some of us had visited, about the people of entirely different species from those worlds. I thought of the tiger pantheon of different cat gods and goddesses, and then the many different faiths on our isolated globe. Was there just one? all-powerful deity or presence, governing the fates of everyone across all those countless worlds? And if so, what if you wanted to do something that was not on the cards? If there was another world almost exactly like this one out there, with another Abigail who made different choices, was her Annie still alive there? That little boy, Adam, had she prevented his death too? Why was their fate different? 
And with all those variables in mind, was that same god presiding over the olive-colored world of teeth and claws that the Wendigo had come from? Was that part of the plan? If so, why was the Wendigo the fate of this world when it wasn't in others? Was he works in mysterious ways just the best safety feature of belief? To prevent us all going absolutely insane as we pondered this. You know, I muttered finally, breaking the silence. Back when I was a kid, one time my father took me aside and said to me, Abigail, a lot of us make choices for ourselves that wind up hurting folks we never wanted to hurt. And someday you're going to have to decide what to fight for. And this next bit really stuck with me. Because I'd been living by it for years already without knowing. But as soon as he said the words, it left me questioning myself from that point onward. He said, Sometimes there ain't no right but what you keep inside. I felt a warm touch, and Tabitha's hand was on mine. Are you all right, sweetheart? She asked, genuine worry on her face. I haven't been all right for a long while. So what's this all about? I guess it's about not really knowing what's right until I get there. And I have that sad, perfect perspective. I leaned forward and tickled Baby Jay on the cheek. He stared back at me with that extraordinary Zen-like calm. I wish I had your certainty, kid. The clock began to chime and I drained my bottle. I have to get going. It sounded like we were going to talk about something that's really bothering you. Can you be a little late? Not for these folks. I shook my head as I stood, my eye fallen on the dinner table inside and the package that had arrived earlier. Do you want to come and visit the rest of them with me? I'm sure they'd love to see you again. Tell them all I send my warmest regards. I helped her to her feet. Especially Harry and James. But I'll let you go on without me. That wasn't a journey I made. Mine was rather different. She hefted the bassinet and stroked Jay's head tenderly watching me with that concerned eye. On Thundercloud, as we had journeyed up and the cabins grew colder, a private from Silent Company had come to our quarters and requested we follow him to liaise with the deputy director. We entered a study to find Truth Arlington at a desk inside, surrounded by paperwork, a terse expression on her face. I didn't expect to see you all the way up here. I'm not thrilled with the setup either, Gray. I'm here monitoring things for the NIA while I continue to cram a decade worth of intel into my brain. Still at the homework stage? That stage just never stops for me. Besides, White's branch may not answer to Catherine's, but this Zeppelin is shared by both. And Holloway wanted someone she could trust keeping an eye on whatever he does. Are you still concerned about his actions? Off the record, yes. But officially speaking, also yes. Well, at last. Something you and I are in agreement over. The day finally came. Go to that closet, would you, James? Penrose obliged, 
and pulled from the hanging space two coats. The blue one is for you, Gray. Should keep you warm out there, and safe enough if you wear it under your polar gear. More stone spring plating. I pulled it on and felt the weight of each panel woven into the material. It was insulated with fleece, and I felt like I was being hugged. A strange, comforting sensation. We managed to salvage enough armor from your green coat, combined with what we had left to hand. Harry hasn't been able to make any more recently. Or do much of anything, I said softly. Truth shook her head. And it's blue, too. Any particular reason for that? Truth regarded me a long moment, her expression somber. Then she shrugged. I figured you'd look good in blue. But hey, I was right. Changing the subject swiftly, she pointed with her pen. Penrose, we had that one in storage for cold weather. James examined his deep red coat. Did this belong to your father? He asked eventually. She nodded without looking at him. He'd have wanted to keep you safe. I glanced at James. I felt inclined to voice exactly what Annie and Butler's additional orders had been. But the bags of tired worry around the lady's eyes held my tongue in check. I flipped my patch to rub at my starlit eye, and the mustard yellow glow of Truth's aura was flickering, nervous, climbing over her like the guttering shallow flames of an unattended coal fire. Wilson had been prompted to move his camp to within a brisk walk of the anomaly to better guard it from curious eyes. So after White had assembled a contingent of silent company soldiers, dressed now for both night manoeuvres and the deep cold, our party headed out for the northern door. Did you get to travel inside? Abigail asked the explorer as we pushed through the snow. I did. Wilson inspected the shadows between the fir trees around us as a great swirl of green and purple lights continued their slow dance overhead. We were present when members of our own group went into the one in Mississippi. So I read. It's a different kettle of fish this far north. Are there still giant carnivorous parasitic plants? Oh yes, but the climate is suitably chillier. It made no difference to their ferocity, their insatiability. They adapted. He had a haunted look now. How many men did you lose? Two on the first time in. That made us cocky thought we had a bead on the way things worked. Prepared ourselves scrupulously for a second excursion. Determined to find out as much as we could. Lost nine the second time. Brave fellows. Awful shame. Had to see to a few of them myself. Messy business. Best I did be over and done with. Agreed. Firmly agreed. Oh, oh I almost forgot something. Wilson dislodged his pack and rooted around inside, handing Abigail a sealed parcel. Leave cuttings, as requested by your paranormal boffin. What's his name? Jeremy Pines. He's going to be thrilled. I'll look after those, said Agent Lee, her hand darting out to sequester the package away and impound it somewhere within her robes. Abigail jumped, having not seen Lee approach, but she now wore a scowl of protest. We reached the lake as the tenth hour rolled around and saw a company of soldiers standing guard. 
They were dressed similarly to those back at the camp. Far behind them, out on the water, shimmering in the moonlight, was the portal. This is the night shift. Wilson's voice pierced the air, and his eyes darted towards the trees. He was performing. You must understand, we cannot allow anyone through the door, knowing what may come back out. We stepped into a rowboat that had a little Viking about it, and departed from the shore. Abigail and I huddled side by side and drew our furs tighter around us. The lake itself was a frozen, jagged ocean of great ice shards, all piled atop each other like the broken crockery of a million giants. But the part we set out into in the boat was unstable and fluid, reacting to the eddying currents of the door. How many are in those woods? White asked quietly from the front of the boat. We don't know exactly. One evening a gaggle of them snuck over from the other end of the lake and actually managed to get inside. Couldn't you post guards around the perimeter? Intercept them from every angle? Give them whistles? Capital notion. That is, if our numbers weren't already stretched too thin. A group of them could take out a single man and be into canoes and through the door before his companions could respond. So, we draw their attention to the front, make a big show of force, and keep a watchful group of snipers at the periphery. What happened with the ones who crept inside? Did they turn into Wendigos? Quite right, they did. Wilson growled, his moustache twitching in indignation. After that, it became a case of watching the door to see when they would slink out again. Can they survive out here long? It said in the handbook they were resilient to the cold. Resilient, but not immune. Enough that a few have slipped away from us. Some of those beasties who kept their warm coats on led us a merry dance. I tracked one for a day or so myself. But no, the lake. We're at minus 20 degrees out here. The water forms a natural barrier. If they don't possess the wherewithal to get back into canoes when they leave, they'll be submerged. After that, even if they can swim, it's just a matter of minutes, regardless of what they're wearing. Exactly. Which is why the men and women standing guard back there are on strict instructions to flee should they be attacked. Remain as a group so as not to be caught and taken down individually. Then return and monitor the doorway. Far easier to pick off those bloody twits one at a time as they stagger out infected than it would be to keep repelling them at a continuously escalating cost. It's a show of force with the preservation of human life behind it. I looked back at the murky shore and shuddered. Abigail flipped her eye patch and stared ahead at the fold in the air as we drew near. The ghostly rushing sound became audible over the Canadian winds as I muttered to her. Same colour signature? Same exact colour. The birth world of the Wendigo. It's nearly killed us. But now we can kill it right back. So is one of you going to do your little parlour trick now? That would, I'm sure, put a lot of people's minds at rest. I'm the opener, she's the closer. Then close away, my chickadee, and we'll all go home for tea. The rush of bitingly cold air gnawed at our faces as the boat was brought about next to the doorway. Abigail removed her fur mitten and extended her trembling left hand, fingers splayed. Then put the mitten back on quickly. Ah, Jesus! Have you got it? Yeah, I've got it. Just remind me not to take my gloves off again. Oh, jolly good. I can already see it getting smaller. I can feel it getting smaller. In my teeth. 
The doorway shrank in on itself, slowly folding down and shining brighter until there was just the pinprick trace of it, like an intense icy firefly. And then that too was gone. Abigail clapped her mitts together. Okay, the world is safer. Let's get back to camp and drink until dawn. Tea, if you prefer. We earned it. Well done, Captain Gray. You have exceptionally fine control. It's all in the mind. She retorted, not looking at White, but tapping her own head. As the boat returned to the soldiers on the shore, there was movement by the tall rocks looming nearby. Shadowy figures were standing there. Not wishing to be too alarmist, but could those perhaps be fanatics? They might well be. I presume they're going to be somewhat vexed that we've collapsed their stairway to heaven. I would say more than somewhat. Then prepare yourselves for a fight and stay out of the water. We drew up to the shore, lined with Wilson's six guards and the dozen members of Silent Company. Strong hands pulled us inland and tied the boat to the dock. White sprang out and began barking orders concisely. We are going to be attacked. You two snipers set up defenses to the east by the storms. Guard us, especially this pair. He pointed at Abigail and I. Agent Lee, do not leave their sides, and all of you, check ammunition and hand-to-hand weaponry. Everything happened extremely quickly. Several figures broke from the stones, rushing around to the other side of us. Pincer maneuver. White declared, then turned to the head of Silent Company. Ozu, move everyone back to base camp. You other two, take up positions beside the dock and intercept. Sukhorov, Semben, Trufo, Yimu. Flush them out. The four soldiers darted forwards, ratcheting the levers on their Winchesters, heading for the trees. Then a group of figures rushed in from the west, screaming a horrifying whoop that Wilson later identified as the Rebel Yell, a practice the new Confederacy had, not coincidentally, adopted from the old. Gunshots clattered around us as they opened fire, and I saw sabers and knives flashing in the moonlight. White looking like some kind of Japanese oni. A kabuki demon in pale armor and flowing winter cloak was targeted first, bullets impacting as he leapt, dodged, rolled and flipped through the snow, sprinting in to take out the shooters. They were shapes of leather and fur with bearded faces, and they screamed in panic as he drew his sword and aimed for every throat, ducking and weaving as he tore the group apart from within slicing tendons and swiping off limbs with surgical precision. The men and women who fled this melee wound up encountering the rest of Silent Company, who moved forward as Abigail and I were frog-marched from the boat and towards the forest pathway. It was a running battle, and the fanatics were outmatched, but not outnumbered. Screeches, oaths, and barely-worded commands rose from the chaos, and while I felt a pang of pity for those hopelessly attempting to bring down white in close quarters, there was something truly terrifying about the eyes of these humans. We had seen them before, inset in the heads of the Southern Cross, an utter dedication to a principle, even unto death. I would have sworn they were Wendigos, 
but their irises were unflecked with orange. This was animalistic hysteria of a different kind. been listening to episode two of uncivil outlaw closure written edited and directed by alexander shaw dr james penrose and mr white performed by alex shaw captain abigail gray and agent lee ying long performed by sharon shaw commander calvin wilson performed by matt ramsey sergeant tabitha chorley performed by maureen foley Deputy Director Truth Arlington, performed by Theo Lee. Fantastic Dimbar, Stormfront and Infidos, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Uncivil Outlaw Theme, True Greatness, performed by Bjorn Lynn of Shockwave Sound. Many Soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 supporters get credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Sabard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Hui, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow. Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chesham. And you can support us simply by leaving an enthusiastic iTunes or Amazon review. The novel of Uncivil Outlaw is available in Kindle and paperback form. And if you're a fan of the New Century Multiverse, you will definitely want to check out Through the Wind Door. The first discussion podcast covering each story in turn, hosted and produced entirely independently by Greg Downing and Toby Jungius. And you can find that on iTunes and wherever else you find podcasts.